Today's reading from the New Testament comes from Acts 17, 10 through 34. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Arapagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Rapagas, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Arepagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you join me as we pray? 
Oh God, we are so hungry and thirsty for you, each of us in our own way. Uh, We come um, too desperate to play religion or to play church. Uh, Some of us are seeking. Uh, Some of us need eyes to see. We pray that you would come, Jesus, and make yourself known through your living word. And we trust you to do that. And we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. Well, we are deep into our study of the book of Acts. We started this thing way back in September. And we normally don't study something so long. We've had breaks. And uh, what we've been doing is looking at the formation of the early church but also the transformation of that community. The formation and transformation of this group called Christians. And now tonight, we come to how uh, that wisdom of the gospel was embodied and communicated. Okay? These are the two things we're going to look at. How it must be first embodied how it must be uh, lived before it can be spoken. It has to be received before it can be relayed. And uh, we see this uh, under what I'm calling, what is a wise witness? What is a wise witness? Here's a quote from a chaplain at Harvard University. My hope is to help foster better dialogue between Christians and atheists, and that together we can work to see a world in which people are able to have honest, challenging, and loving conversation across lines of difference. Now, that quote did not come from a Christian chaplain. It came from the atheist chaplain there. And I will say that uh, in my time serving as a chaplain at Harvard, some of my best conversations were with the atheist chaplain because they were honest and they were challenging and respectful. Now, what I think is surprising about that, when we hear it, is those values that he articulated are deeply Christian values. It's really part of Christian belief and Christian ethics of really what it means to have a wise witness to the world. The book of James... Uh, has this contrast between uh, what we would call to be earthly or unspiritual wisdom and what is heavenly wisdom. Earthly or unspiritual wisdom is known by things like bitter jealousy and falseness to the truth, which is an interesting phrase he uses, being false to the truth. But then listen how heavenly wisdom is described. Pure Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. And what I want you to notice about that wisdom is none of it had to do with quote-unquote truth or content. It was all about character, wasn't it? Heavenly wisdom about character. A wise witness, we find here, is not only the way the truth is received, 
it's critical to how then the truth is delivered. And we'll see that both with, first of all, the Berean community, and then as Paul engages Athens, the center of intellectual thought of his day. So let's first look at wisdom received. Um, Now, we have several teachers in our community, and um, I I have often heard them say, um, and if you've ever tried to teach anybody, you know this is true, there's a big difference between teaching a group of students that are eager to learn and those that are really disinterested and just kind of like, why do I got to be here? Those that are teachable and those, in a sense, that are unteachable. And this is true not only of individuals, but of groups. It's fascinating to me. I, was, I want to talk to you teachers about this, but I've heard this often where they'll say sometimes it's groups from year to year that flip-flop that way. They might have a class that is just like eager to learn and then a whole class that just doesn't really care. And there's actually a parallel in the Bible. You find not only that some individuals seem to be open and teachable, and some are not, but even groups of individuals. So Paul and Silas just came from Thessalonica. And there were a couple people to believe, but they basically got run out of town by a mob. But then they end up in Berea, and Luke notes that this group was actually more noble. So what was it about this group that made them receive the word in a different way? It says, when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. A couple things I want you to notice. First of all, um, something about strategy and pattern. We've seen this enough now, where when Paul ends up in a city, the first thing he does is he immediately goes to the local synagogue. He does that for a couple reasons. First of all, the early church, these new Acts believers, were comprised first by Jewish believers, right? People that had followed Judaism, that had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, so it made sense to go there. Also, Paul was an official religious teacher. He was a Pharisee. So he might have some cred as he showed up there. Also, each synagogue had copies of the Scripture, And so he could start there. And you'll notice this in these two accounts. Paul has different starting points depending on the group he has. When he's dealing with a group that has some understanding of faith and background, he'll start with the scripture directly. But when he's dealing with the Athenian philosophers, he can't start there, right? He has to refer to scripture indirectly. It's the same with us today, right? I mean, maybe 50, 60 years ago, a Christian could sit down and have a conversation with someone and there was some sort of common ground because Christianity was more prevalent as a civil religion at least. But now, to sit down with someone and say, hey, uh, can I walk you through the Roman road? Some of you don't know what that is. Anybody know what the Roman road is? A couple people, right? It's a wonderful thing. It's like walking through the gospel, through the book of Romans, but people would probably go, hey, that's really great. By the way, I don't believe the Bible is real, and I think you're sort of a dangerous person, right? Who knows what they would say? There's less common ground. 
And so there's this idea that Paul knows he takes stock of where he is. And so he engages with the Bereans. There was another reason why he would go to the synagogue, because there he could find God-fearers. And we've run into this word a few times, right? Last week, Lydia. These were non-Jewish Gentiles that had left paganism and were open already to Judaism. And so that same openness made them open to hearing more. And it was actually that group that launched the global church. Why is there a global church today? Because as Paul went into these places and met Gentiles and preached Christ, they went off and shared with their group. Because their group had an openness. Oftentimes, even today, you'll hear about movements of the Christian faith throughout the world. Right? Moving in this, there's an openness that God has provided. And the church expands. But let's zone in on the Bereans, because right now we're looking at what is it about um, having a heart of wisdom that receives? And Luke uses three different verbs here. First of all, he says that they were noble. And what that means is they were open-minded. They were open-minded, and they were ready to listen. Now, that doesn't mean they just gobbled up anything because later we're told that they examined the scriptures. They were thoughtful and critical in the best way. But there was a fundamental openness they had and a readiness to listen. And man, that is a rarer quality today, isn't it? An openness, a readiness to listen. I actually think um, I actually believe that um, the less secure you are in your belief, in your faith, the less secure you are, the less open you can be. Someone who is actually secure in the gospel, they're grounded in the Word of God, they understand their faith, they're not threatened by listening and being open. Because they know where they're rooted. And so a mark of these particular soon-to-be believers, that was present in them. Next, we're told that they receive the word with all eagerness. That is mean their dispositions weren't arms crossed and they didn't have their starship deflectors off, you know, up. Where it's just like, you know, their disposition is... Uh, I'm basically in a posture of pessimism already. I'm in a posture to, to um, critique before I commend. I, I've said this before, um, and this was hammered into Meg and I when we were at seminary together, uh, and Mike, and Justin, and a few other, Mazaray. Um, the the, the uh, professor, Jaron Bars, that taught us about engaging apologetics, hammered this idea of saying, you must commend before you critique. Commend before you critique. And that simple thing, if if this community alone adopted that, if there could be a community in Washington, D.C., that is committed no matter what it is, politics, theology, cultural issues, that my posture first is I'm going to commend what I can before I critique, it would be revolutionary. 
And we're going to see in a moment that Paul does that as he talks to the Athenians. But these Bereans have at least an initial eagerness. And I think it's, it's this idea that, you know, I believe that God is really big and sovereign and I believe he wants to talk to me. I believe he really wants to communicate and teach me. The Greek there also means that they received it with goodwill without prejudice and bias. Now that assumes self-awareness, doesn't it? If you're going to have goodwill and uh, not be prejudiced and biased, it's going to mean there's a certain humble self-awareness that you have about who you are and where you're coming from. You know, there, there's sort of two, I think, errors that I see people fall off onto. Uh, one would be the error that, you know, all of us are so uh, chained with our biases, so enculturated that, that we can't ever move out of it in an honest and open way. You know, it's just sort of like a form of fatalism. Like, you know, there's just no hope. And then on the other hand, there's this idea of folks that walk around as if they're sort of the pure culture, capital C. There's a version of that that happens in the church where I would say it's almost like a over-spiritualization. Because I'm in Christ, because I'm a Christian, that means that uh, all that other stuff doesn't affect me. Uh, Jesus was more in Christ than anybody. And he was a Jewish man. He was an enculturated being. And so, there's an ability where the Holy Spirit, and I, I would argue this, I would say that the more secure you are in your primary identity, being in God and being in Christ and knowing Christ, the more free you are to survey your biases and to not be threatened. Because why do people have to cling to that thing? Because it's their Savior. It's their God. And so you're able to go, I, this is where I can see this and I can see that. There was something in there, and that's where we begin to learn. I was listening to an interview by Esau McCauley, and uh, he wrote a book called uh, Reading While Black, African-American Bible Interpretation. Some of you may have read that book. And uh, he, he, he was being interviewed, and they were talking about the resurrected body. And in it, he said... One of the reasons that in the African-American tradition where he inhabits, the resurrection of the body is so precious and important is because the way the African-American body had been traumatized and abused and degraded and devalued. And so this idea that as the resurrection, a beautiful black body resurrects and is seen in glory is very important. I would have never come to that insight, right? It's my brother and sister of another cultural space understanding the word of God that helps me go, wow. And that's true for every race and culture, right? That beautiful idea of the resurrected body. And so next it says that they examine the word. And this is where the Protestant tradition actually excels because it was the Protestant tradition and the Reformed tradition that got the Bible back into the hands of people so they could read it, so they could begin to critique what they hear. 
You know, so the way this hopefully works is, you know, I stand up to preach, Mike stands up to preach. There's a fundamental openness and eagerness, believing that, okay, our preachers were called and they've been ordained and they've been examined. So there's a fundamental openness to hear this word. But also in our community groups, we chop it up. And I know what you say about my sermons. Actually, I don't. But, right? You're going you're gonna to be Bereans. You're going to examine it and go, well, this is what I think the text, you know, Glenn's point there, yeah, that was, eh, I don't know about that one. That's okay. Right? That's okay. It's the work of this sort of thing. Here's a, a quote I thought was helpful. By commending this activity, Luke encourages this searching of the scriptures as a pattern for all believers and also gives support to the doctrine of the clarity of scripture. The idea that the Bible can be understood rightly, not only by scholars, but also by ordinary people who read it eagerly and diligently with conscious dependent on God for help. Bereans. This is one of the beautiful things about the Christian faith. It's, you know, um, the clarity. It's funny because the theological word is called perspicuity. Not a very clear word, right? But it's the clarity. But it's this idea that, yeah, you know, even a child can open up the Bible. And and the main doctrines, the most important stuff, can be plain to anybody. The other stuff, yeah, you know, there's going to be debates. But the saving stuff is clear. So, those three things, this eagerness, this openness, this examination, marked the heart of this community, right? It was the way they received the word. Now let's move, Not we won't take long in this, but let's now move to Paul. Because I would argue, you see that heart in Paul, and then you see how he then, how he then uh, relays it. Okay? First of all, Paul shows up in Athens, and what do you find? An eagerness to learn about the culture. He begins by walking around and studying the culture, looking at the idols, looking. There was magnificent art in Athens, magnificent art. But behind that art were some false messages that burdened his heart, just like you and I might see a magnificent painting or a magnificent film and marvel over the skill of it and the power of it. But still, there would be some themes in it. You go, ah, that just grieves me. Why? Because Paul will say this later, because idolatry degrades people. Those that worship them become like them. The Christian faith teaches that we've been made in the image of God. We don't need uh, statues because we are the statue. We are the image. And so it grieved Paul when he saw that. But he takes time to listen He's also read their poets because he quotes their poets. And so one of the things I I admire when I'm... um, It's really important that that, uh, Christians interact with um, the sources firsthand and not just redacted through like four or five writers, right? Where we're not just like quoting things because as soundbite, we're just we live in a soundbite world, and then there's all this wonderful fighting and people like argue, and you're just like, yeah, you've totally taken that out of context. Christians have done the dignity to say that I will actually read and listen to you. And I'll tell you, even, even a fair and honest reading these days, 
Like, to, to watch someone sit, imagine this, whether you're watching an interview or a political debate or something, you, when someone is sitting there and they're listening to the opposition and they can articulate what they believe and they do so respectfully, you're like, what is this? What is this new thing? It's such a breath of fresh air. It's just like, whoa. It's so radical. So Paul does this. And yet he's burdened. It was, it, you know, one of the uh, um, historians, one of the historians um, in Athens, Pliny, or a philosopher, said that in his estimation, Athens had over 73,000 statues and idols. And one of the jokes of a historian was, in Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. So very prevalent. And so he is burdened by this, and that brings us to our city. There are many, 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 many idols in our city. Some of them are visible. Some of them are invisible. Someone has made the case, actually, in American cities, sometimes the tallest, most prominent buildings are the clues to the idols of the city. I don't know if it works all the way through, but that's, you can think about that. But think about the invisible idols of our city, the functional gods, the things that people live for because they believe it'll save them. Reputation, to be on the lips of important people, or parents feeling like, I just need to get my kid to that next rung on the ladder. And then the next one, and it's like, I don't even really know where it's going, but i got to get him to that next thing, this anxiousness. But the biggest idol in America, I would say, is um, individual self-expressionism and desire. That is the idol of our culture, the individual and their desire. Everything gets built up from there. And I would say one of the signs that in our community, one of the signs that we are truly present and not just passing through is when our hearts are provoked over the idols of our city, when they're burdened like Paul. How do you know you're actually like present here? When you walk through the city, you see the magnificence, the glory, but you find your heart burdened for the idols of the city. This is what we see with Paul, just as Jesus wept over Jerusalem. So Paul's burden leads him to engage in the marketplace. He lands himself in the Areopagus, which is uh, both sort of like the council city officials, but they also had power to imprison Paul. So he's not just sort of debating, he's also defending himself. In this Areopagus, there are the leader thing. It's the cultural setter. They're the culture brokers, the influence brokers. And 500 years ago, you know, Athens was the top of everything. But even in Paul's day, it still was the cultural center. So there he is in the middle of that with the thinkers. Two of those are mentioned, Epicureans and Stoics. So the Epicureans, they didn't deny that God existed they just believed that God was totally distant, that he didn't really impact our lives, that the cosmos was accidental, that history was random, so the best thing you should do is just live for pleasure and happiness. Sound familiar? Not much change, right? 
pleasure and happiness. And the best way to get pleasure and happiness was sort of hakuna matata. It was a don't be competitive. Just kind of like ride with it. And then the Stoics were there. The Stoics were beholden to nature and reason. They were big about fate. Fate was fixed, so what you do is you perform your moral duty. And the best skill you can do is a purpose things and people toward the best end, basically as objects to that end, right? Happiness without passion. So Paul listens. He gains understanding. And I, I now want to just quickly walk us through the way he engages with them. The first thing he demonstrates, I've listened to you. He's able to talk with them about their culture in a way that's authentic and not just the stereotype. He's actually heard. And then he begins by affirming them. He affirms their piety. He affirms that they're religious. He starts where he can with them to build bridges. He starts to say, this is what I see that you got right. This is what I see that, you know, we share together. He's building bridges. And then he goes in for the connection. He talks about uh, the altar of the unknown God. And these, by the way, are documented and recorded by ancient historians well, these altars that would be to an unknown God. And it was basically that altar was to say, we got all these idols, but I'm still not sure we're covering all our bases. I still feel like there's something we're missing Something about this God up there that I don't know if we know. Unknown. And then Paul begins to connect the dots with them. He takes their world and the world that God has created, and he begins to say, I want to try to help you see some connections here. And as I said, he brings Scripture directly to bear with the Bereans, but here he's indirectly bringing it. But he's still relying on the revelation of God because the power of God is the word of God. Right? That, it's living. Our arguments, kind of, you know, as, as much as our arguments are anchored to God's word, that's the power that changes people. So Paul doesn't just sort of go off on his own thought. And what does he say? He first of all says a radical thought in our time, God is not the creation of our own thoughts. He's saying, like, you know, today we live in a time where people would say, I see God like this, or God to me is this, or this is the God that I embrace, which is essentially to say that I create God. You know, right? That, that, that I, God is who my mind says God is. And Paul says, no, actually, God is a person on his own. God is like his own person outside of ourselves. And he reveals who he is. I mean, who of us, you know, who of us would like to be in a relationship with someone where we meet them and they initially go, you know, this is who you are to me. This is who you are to me. Well, I'm not like that. No, 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 this is what you're like. You know, I see you like this and like this and like this. We would just cry and go, you know, I'm a person. I'm my own person. God's his own person. Paul talks about that. And then he said, he's not served by our hands. That is, he's not like codependent on us. He's not needy. God doesn't need you 
He doesn't need me. He wants you. He wants you. Man, that's a lot better. (laughs) He's free. He's not dependent. His love is unconditional. The Bible doesn't tell us the reason why he put his electing, choosing love. The only thing it tells us is because he loves us. And then while he is transcendent, while he's transcendent, he's also near. In no other faith does God come closer than in the Christian faith. And this is sort of the different starting point we have. Um, If you believe God is a person, and you've heard me sort of go on to this before, like, as far as I can tell, you all are persons. You're people. In fact, you're very unique people. Interesting personalities. You got your own fingerprints, your own eye print, your own stories, your own voice. So distinctly personal. How do we get that from the impersonal? We don't. How do you get that from like universality and a force and power? Right? If God is a person, if God is a person, doesn't it make sense that he wanted to be personal with us? And so in the Christian faith, you have a God that speaks, that writes a book, who appears, and finally he shows up in the flesh. And he walks in our shoes, and he bears our burdens. So that when you're crying out, going, Lord, this is what my life is like, you look at the face of Jesus, and he goes, I know, I know. person of God. And then he quotes, you know, from their own poets. And this is where, upon one basis, upon what basis should, should Christians have confidence in engaging with people? Because right now, you know, it might be easy to go, I feel this way. Like, man, what I believe seems so irrelevant and off of left field to people. You know Why? Because God's glory is so great, I don't care how much someone is opposed to him, they can't suppress it. Like, imagine this. Imagine my children or your children say to you, I hate you. I don't want to look like you or have any mannerisms like you. Sorry. No matter how much you reject me or how much you oppose me, guess what? You look like me and you act like me. God has made us in our image. No matter how much people, they still look and act. They bear his image. And that is the connection point. And it's actually the dignifying point. Because when Christians begin to have dialogues with people like Paul, and they go, you know, when I see this part of you, or even what you said, this is the connection point I see. And it's said with humility, and it's said with that Berean heart and spirit. Hey, none of us control outcomes. But that's being a faithful witness. That's being a faithful witness. And lastly, Paul says he created us within boundaries and human geography. And this to me is interesting. The other stuff is really uninteresting to me. But this is really interesting to me. No. Just kidding. 
The Stoics would have been into the brotherhood of man, the image of God, but also the idea of providence. Paul seems to say it's by the limitations that God has placed on us whereby we're able to seek him and hopefully find him. Now, I think about modern people, us, and how much we live without limitation, or we think we will, right? This idea like I'm, I'm, I'm infinite, I'll go anywhere, I can push myself beyond margins, all these different things. And it's actually, as you and I begin to understand that I'm a boundary being, I'm a place to being, I'm a finite being, I begin to find God there. I find God there. I'm still thinking about that one. But lastly, he says, God has been long-suffering. He's been patient with all our idolatries. But guess what? It's time to repent. It's time to turn. He's long-suffering, but, you know, he has come in the flesh. He's appointed a God-man who's come, who walked and who rose from the dead. Today is the day of salvation. Don't ever believe that you're guaranteed another day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to deal with your creator. To deal with the claim that he has come to save and deliver you. Today is the day to do it. And so at the end of that, as I said, you know, you win some, you lose some. Some people were like, I'm down with it. The other ones actually say, you're a seed picker. And what they meant by that was, you just gather scraps of knowledge on the ground. You're not coherent. You're not, I, you know, these aren't pleasant things to hear. But Paul doesn't lose his sanctification or his character. Right? It's because he received the word humbly, and so he could bring it humbly. I think that's enough. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the way that you speak and you continue to speak, and this room is evidence of that. We pray that you might make us wise witnesses in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.